No, but it's really good to be back. Uh, growing up in church, I thought it was corny whenever a pastor came up on stage and said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. But for the last two weeks, I could not go into the house of the Lord. So I'm glad <laughs> when they said unto me, let us go back to the house of the Lord. So it's, it's really good back to be back with everybody here, especially because we're starting this brand new series, X Marks the Spot. And Pastor Roland talked about it, but we're really looking for, you know, looking because it's like X, treasure map. We're looking for two things. Now, the first thing we're looking to do is to define discipleship. How do we as an every nation family make disciples? And the second thing we're looking to do is to discover purpose. It's even better than finding the Constitution. We want to find purpose. And when we talk about purpose, it really makes me think about someone burdened with purpose. Uh, I'm talking about Loki, uh, especially his portrayal in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Because Loki, of course, is Thor's brother and uh, trickster god, whatever that means. What a horrible thing to be god of. I'm glad we have a real god. But he also is known for a catchphrase. Because whenever Loki shows up, as far back as I can remember with the first Avengers, shows up on Earth, and he has this catchphrase. And his catchphrase is, I am Loki of Asgard, and I am burdened with glorious purpose. Now, what is his glorious purpose? Nobody knows. He has never talked about it. He had a TV series that went through a whole first season, really good, but he didn't even talk about what his purpose is. Must be a real burden if you don't know what it is. And then I thought about it, and I realized that we as Christians are meant to carry God's glorious purpose into the world. But instead of being burdened by it, we're actually wanting to be blessed by it. And God is willing to provide us with a lot more clarity than Loki. Because we can actually know what God's purpose is. Creator God, maker of heaven and earth, king of kings and lord of lords, we can know his purpose. It must be a pretty big purpose, wouldn't you think? So that's what we're going to talk about today. We want to figure out what God's purpose is for the universe, for all of creation. And once we figure out what God's purpose is, we'll also figure out how we can engage our role in his glorious purpose. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you that we get to come close to you, that you are not wanting to be a mystery. You don't want to be far. You don't want to be distant. You are not uncaring. Lord, you're here. And you ask us to come closer. So I pray that today we'd know you a little more, that we would be able to be empowered and enlightened by your spirit to know your purpose, that you would teach us, God, what your purpose is and how we can grasp, engage our place in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if we're going to go on this search for God's glorious purpose, we might as well start in the beginning. We can glimpse God's purpose in the beginning. And of course, when you say the words in the beginning in church, it brings us straight to Genesis chapter 1. The first three words in the Bible, at least in English, I'm not sure if it's in Hebrew or not, but the first three words in the Bible in English are in the beginning. But we have to say it with a little more like gusto than that. In the beginning. It's like Mufasa reading the Bible or Morgan Freeman or something. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. 
And if we're going to look for his purpose, we might as well start there because we see his intent. Everything that God wanted, everything that God designed, everything that God wanted to create in the beginning before it got messed up. Because if we can see God's intent, then we can also see God's purpose. Isn't that right? So in Genesis chapter 1, we get this account of creation. And whenever we look at the Bible, but really in particular, very mysterious and big and grand parts of the Bible, it's good for us to to ask the questions that the Bible is leading us to ask. So when I was in college, one of the things that I would throw up as my excuse about not committing to Christ was when. When was the beginning? Was it 6,000 years ago? Or was it millions of years ago? Did God make the world in six days or did he make it in millions of years? I don't know. I don't know. So I'm not going to follow Jesus. But may I submit to you this morning, that's not even the point of this chapter In fact, I actually think it's intentionally vague. I don't know what the first three words are in Hebrew, but I can tell you something about the word day because God made the world in first day, second day, third day. In Hebrew, that word day means a literal 24 hours and also a long and undefined length of time. It's both. It's not the point of the chapter. The point of the chapter is God. The point is not when, it's who. And who is God, and we get to meet him, and we get to learn things about him. For example, that God is all-powerful. Now, my college mind was stuck in the science book, but one thing that science will say now is that we can observe, because the universe had a definite beginning, that time, space, and energy, as we know it, all started in the beginning with the Big Bang. I, I just went really nerdy. But now I have to finish it. Anyway, if those things started in the beginning, then whatever started it must therefore be greater than time, space, and energy. But what has the Bible told us about God for thousands of years? Well, one, he's not defined by time because he's eternal. Two, he's not defined by space because he's omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. And three, he's not defined by energy because he's all-powerful and omnipowerful. Therefore, in the beginning, God. God created the heavens and the earth. This God that the Bible wants us to meet in Genesis chapter 1, he is all-powerful. But he's more than all-powerful. He's also doing a good job. And every day he stops and he takes a look at things and he says, this is good. And this is very important, so we'll come back to that. And this all-powerful God who is making things good is also very relational. He's very loving. And we know this, one, because he stops and he talks to somebody and let us, he says, let us make mankind in his own image. Don't have time to unpack that today, so he's talking to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But he says, let us make something just like us so they can relate to us. And we're going to read about that in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 to 31. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you 
Every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So let's recap now. God makes the planet, and God makes the land, and the oceans, and the plants, and the animals. And then God gets to us, and he makes humans in his image. In fact, only humans are made in the image of God. The Latin phrase is the imago Dei, the image of God. And God makes us in his image so that we can know him. He makes us in his image so that we can perceive him, so that we can communicate with him, so that we can understand him, so that we can have a Think about Genesis chapter 1. You can go home and check for yourself if you don't believe me. But at no point does God stop and talk to the animals. He is not Dr. Doolittle. We are the only beings in creation on this earth meant and designed to have a relationship with God. That's also God creates Adam and Eve and he blesses them. And he blesses them first with provision, right, because they have access to all this food. And I'm assuming it's a pretty beautiful view and they're never going to need a single thing, but in addition to provision, he also gives them purpose. He gives them authority. He gives them a role to play in this creation that he has set up, where they are the only beings made in his image. Therefore, they have dominion over the earth. They have authority. They have leadership. And at this moment, everything is very good. And the reason why everything is very good is because everything is working as designed. All of creation is rightly ordered in relationship to God and to each other. In other words, all of creation is in right relationship with its creator and with each other. Most importantly, within this state of right relationship, Adam and Eve are in right relationship with God. And they're in this position where they're able to experience the infinite love and infinite blessings of an infinite God. And... They are free to love him back if they choose to do so. And that is where we get a glimpse of God's purpose. In this state of right relationship, before anything goes wrong, we see God's purpose and intent at work in the world he made. The purpose of God is to love and bless in right relationship. That's all it is. God's purpose when he made the world was to love and bless in the state of right relationship with him. Think about it. God is all-powerful. The whole creation thing doesn't sound very hard for him. Let there be light. There was light. Because God's all-powerful, he doesn't need a single thing. And yet he's not just all-powerful, he's also all-loving. And because he's all-loving, infinitely loving, he chooses to use his infinite power to infinitely love and infinitely bless. And he creates us to love and to bless. But that's not just obscure and vague and alluded to in the Old Testament. It's actually made clear and explicit in the New Testament. So now we're going to hop from Genesis 1 to Ephesians 1. And I love the mirror going on here because Genesis chapter 1 takes us to the beginning. But Ephesians chapter 1 actually brings us past the beginning, before the beginning. It's like Paul just read the books that Moses wrote. He's like, I have to one-up this guy. 
So let's see Paul 1 up Moses in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. Here's what he writes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So from this reading in Ephesians chapter 1, we can conclude that the purpose of God, which he intended before time began, was to adopt us into his family so that we, we could experience his love and blessings like we were his own children. And we can conclude that the purpose of God was to include all of creation and set it under the lordship and love of his son, Jesus. That's the purpose of God. It's pretty clear. It's all he wanted. To love and to bless. And so we could experience his love and blessings. And participate in it. And hang out with nature and ride on lions. And do all this incredible stuff. <coughs> Excuse me. Can you imagine like riding a great white shark? <coughs> How cool would it be if creation was rightly ordered. And all the animals don't listen to us. I could be Dr. Doolittle. Except it's not that way. Is it? It's not that way in the world, and it's not that way in our lives. Maybe it's that way in your life, but it's not that way in mine. The Bible says that every spiritual blessing is mine in Christ. But sometimes I'm searching for any spiritual blessing. When Allie was sick two weeks ago, and I had to get up every hour to make sure her fever wasn't getting too high, and make sure her oxygen wasn't getting too low, I was looking for any spiritual blessing. I see what the purpose of God is in his word, and yet I didn't see it at work in my life, and I think a lot of us can feel that way. So what exactly happened? Because something must have happened to derail the purpose of God in the universe. Something did happen. God's purpose was derailed when mankind distrusted God and rejected his love. Everybody turn to your neighbor and tell him, it's your fault. I'm just, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. But it, it is. It's also mine. It's also yours. Okay, so in the garden that God made, Adam and Eve could eat from every single tree. Isn't that true? No. Every single tree except for one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the only tree that's off limits. Because if they ate from that tree, they would die. Now, that sounds like really irresponsible parenting. Because I have not been a parent for long, but I know better than to leave a weapon or a bottle of poison in the middle of my children's play area. Thanks, God. What's that about? But we did just establish the fact that God's entire purpose was to love and to bless. With that in mind, may I suggest that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was necessary for love. Love 
must have an element of choice. And if there is no element of choice, then God's love with Adam and Eve, robotic at best, prisoners at worst, or slaves. But that's not the kind of love, that's not the kind of relationship that God wanted. So because God wanted genuine love, he had to give them the opportunity to leave the relationship should they choose to do so. And that opportunity to leave the love relationship in which they had all the blessing and all the love of God was a tree in the middle of the garden. It was their exit strategy. It was their eject button. And wouldn't you know it, they pressed that button. So Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Let's find out how it happened. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So, we are introduced at this moment to the serpent. And in case it's not obvious, the serpent is Satan. The Bible does explicitly state this in Revelation. It's, it's Satan. Satan either possesses an actual snake or he appears in the form of one. And then he strikes up a conversation with Eve. Why is she talking to a snake? Don't know. She's doing it. So Eve engages him in conversation. And we see in verse 6 that Adam is there too. And Adam is doing nothing. I got words for him when we get to heaven. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Adam and Eve are supposed to be partners with God and his purpose in the world. So they should have ended this conversation and rejected it. From the very moment it became clear that this snaky snake is trying to get them to distrust God. But they don't. They keep the conversation going and Eve engages a conversation about God without God. Which is a very bad thing to do. We can see it throughout history. And we see it here in the garden. Because the serpent gets her to question God's motives. And he gets her to question God's love. And then Eve responds to the serpent and says, yeah, yeah, but God said we can eat of the trees, just not this one, and we can't touch this one, which is weird, because he didn't say you cannot touch this tree. He just said don't eat from it. So she's revealing that there's this level of misunderstanding with God, and I think it's Adam's fault. I think he didn't explain things to his wife. Clearly he's not doing his job, but I don't know. So the conversation goes on. And the, the serpent begins to tempt her more and more. And he tempts her with this desire to be like God. Essentially to take God's place in her own life. And slowly over the course of the conversation, he steers her intent. And they go from being partners with God on this mission of purpose with God to love and bless all of creation. And they shift and they shift and they shift to now Adam and Eve are standing alongside the serpent. On his team, doubting the love of God together. 
And at this moment, Adam and Eve look at the fruit and they say, that's what I want. That will make me happy. That will make me whole. I would rather have that thing than God. I'm not going to listen to God and his way of doing things. I'm going to find fulfillment my own way. Because somehow I know better than the guy who made me. So they choose the fruit. And in choosing the fruit, they also choose to reject God. They also choose to not trust that God's purpose was good, that his love was real. And this place of right relationship with God in that moment is ruined for all of humanity. In which I think, you jerks! You had it all made! I don't think God was charging you rent in that garden, was he? I imagine eating the diet that God the creator has curated for you, you were probably in pretty good shape. I doubt you had anything called gout, God, or Adam, Eve. Thanks, guys. Now, if I was in that garden, I wouldn't have made that choice. But I think I would have. I think we would have, and I think it's because we do. Because when we sin against God, we're essentially doing the same exact thing. We see something else we want. Something else that makes this promise of happiness and fulfillment in a way that God won't give to us. And we say to God, I want that thing more than I want you. Weird timing. I want this thing. I want this fruit. I want this fill in the blank more than relationship with you. I want to do it my way than, rather than do it your way. I know better than you. I'm going to exalt myself. I'm going to choose myself. I'm going to choose to reject you. And that rejection of God is the essence of sin. And we are all together guilty of this. After Adam and Eve rejected God in the garden, they had to leave it. Because they lost right relationship with him and could no longer be in a literal place of the perfect love and blessings of God. And in the place of love and blessings came shame and guilt. Because from the moment they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it says their eyes were opened and they saw that they were naked and they hid and they covered themselves in fig leaves. Shame and guilt tell us to run and hide. And they are the direct result of sin. And if we've ever found ourselves running from God, running from people, hiding in shame and guilt, performing and doing everything right on the outside, but maybe not being fully authentic in our relationship with God or with other people, shame and guilt. It's the result of sin, our own sin. And God could have left us there forever. Can you imagine a life where that's the only thing we have to look forward to? The end of everything that tempts us. On earth, the story could have ended there. 
But God is a better author than that. And he wrote a better story than that. And he didn't want that to be the end of the story, the end of his purpose. So God's purpose was restored by Jesus. Adam and Eve are off running, covering themselves in fig leaves, hiding behind the bush. I don't imagine it was a very good hiding place. And here comes God. And God says, where are you? Reading between the lines, he knew where they were. If I can play hide and seek with my kids and know where they are, it's easy to know where Astrid is. She's kind of just rolling. If I can find Allie, then God can find Adam and Eve. He knows exactly where they are. He didn't ask them a question because he needed the answer. He asked them a question because he wanted them to answer. The question was for the benefit of the people he was asking. Because the question invited confession. And the confession invited reconciliation. Sometimes we're afraid of God and his judgment. But from the very first moment that God ever has to respond to sin, all we see is God's love. We see the mercy and forgiveness and love of God from the very first time they sinned. The very first moment sin came into existence. Where are you? Where are you? God's asking some of you right now. You might be in church on Sunday, but where are you? Where are you in relationship to him? So God invites confession, and confession goes very, very poorly. Because Adam shows up and he says, it was the woman. It was the woman you gave me, God. So now it's Eve's fault, and it's God's fault. And Eve says, well, it was the snake. The snake says, So God, who wanted mercy, chooses justice. And God pronounces justice, and he speaks to the woman, and he speaks to Adam, but he also speaks to the serpent. Here's what he says to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, singular, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his, singular, heel. Interesting. A woman will give birth to a he. Now, for much of human history, and especially in the ancient Middle East, genealogies always were cited through the man. But somehow this woman will have an offspring, a single he, who will defeat the serpent, crush the serpent's head, literally step on him. But in a final act of resistance, the serpent fights back and bites his heel. Now the implication is pretty clear. What happens when a poisonous snake bites someone's heel? You die. And I expect that there in the garden, I didn't talk to Adam yet, I'm going to, but I haven't yet. They have no idea what God's talking about. Eve doesn't know, serpent doesn't know yet, but we know. Because we have the benefit of all the years that have passed since then. And all of our Christian light bulbs are turning on and flickering. I know who he is. Because he was born of a woman. To a virgin. And he was named Jesus. And Jesus walked the earth. And he chose right relationship with God. And he crushed the head of the snake. 
Because Satan tried to tempt him just like he tried to tempt Adam and Eve. In fact, he tried three times, and he failed every single time. Jesus crushed his head. And then Jesus went to the cross to pay the price for our sin. Because God is just, and someone has to pay for sin. And when Jesus went to the cross in our place for our sin, he died our death. The serpent bit his heel, and he died. That's not the end of the story either. Because three days later, Jesus rose from the dead to prove he is the Son of God. Jesus was restored to life. And when Jesus was restored to life, the purpose of God in the universe was restored too. Because we were restored to our ability to experience the love and blessings of God. Jesus restored the purpose of God in the universe. And the purpose of God expands to us and it includes us when we hear the gospel and when we believe it. Back to the book of Ephesians. Chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glorious grace. We know that we have entered into the purpose of God, experiencing his love and his blessings, because we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We get to experience the love and blessings of God starting now. We might not have it all, but we do have some of it. It started to come in. And this is the guarantee that we'll get it all. And we'll get it all for all of time. We'll get it all beyond time. For eternity. And I love that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. Whenever you order something online from Amazon, whatever it is, you get an order confirmation. You don't get the item right away. The item's coming. It's on the way. But until then, you have confirmation. You have a guarantee. And as long as you have that guarantee, that item is as good as yours. It might not be here now, but it's coming. And as long as I hold on to this, to this guarantee, this promise, I know that's going to be mine. I am entitled to it. It is a guarantee, a seal, a promise that this is going to be delivered and it's going to be in my hands and I can do whatever I want. The Holy Spirit is our order confirmation. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee. And because we have his presence in our lives, because we know the love of God that shouts at us from the innermost parts of our soul and can't be denied, we know that the rest of it's coming. We might not have it now. We might not have the eternal life with God in a world free of sin and free of curse and free of sickness and free of death, but death will die and we will be with God and we have a promise and a guarantee that it's going to be fulfilled. It's coming and it's ours. It's ours. And we are restored to the eternal purpose of God. But not just us. It's not just us. It's for others too. So we help to advance God's purpose when we engage others with the gospel. Romans chapter 10 verse 14 says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? It goes like this, We believe because we heard the gospel, the good news about Jesus. <coughs> Others can believe when they 
hear the gospel about Jesus. And in order for them to hear the gospel, someone needs to share the gospel. Someone needs to speak the gospel. Popular phrase, preach the gospel and use words when necessary. Words are necessary. The gospel is words. Jesus loves you. He died on behalf of our sins. He rose again three days later. Words. And when we share these words, we can restore people to the purpose of God. And we literally engage in the eternal purpose of God for all of creation. To restore people, to reconcile people to relationship with God. So that they can one day experience the infinite love of an infinitely powerful and infinitely good so when we engage them, we engage our purpose and our role in God's purpose. We participate in this, and it's an opportunity and a mandate that comes from Jesus himself. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The purpose of God includes us, and we can go and include others. And Jesus said to go and make disciples. A disciple is someone who follows God, fishes for others, fellowships with the church, while being formed into the image of Jesus. That's what a disciple is. But how do we do it? As an every nation family, here in Vegas and around the world, the discipleship process begins when we, it's in the lobby, engage. We engage people, families, community, and culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We establish them in the word, in the faith, and in community. We equip people with basic skills for ministry. And we empower people for purpose and to make a difference. That is how we make disciples. It's how we engage our role in the glorious purpose of God. There's four E's in the lobby. And they're there every Sunday. That's how we engage our own glorious purpose. That's how we engage our place in the glorious purpose of God. One more movie reference before we go. The music is playing. You know what? We're ending soon. The Return of the King. Third movie of The Lord of the Rings. Based on J.R.R. Tolkien's novel. Now at the end of the story, sorry spoilers, but the story is older than all of us, so not really a spoiler. Aragorn is king again. The Fellowship of the Ring, have, they've won the battle. Sauron is defeated. And he reigns, and he's king. And they celebrate the victory. Now, Tolkien, when he was asked by different people, interviewing him, professors, even clergy, he would always write, and he's written this to multiple people, that the Lord of the Rings was inspired by his Christian faith. It's not necessarily a Christian allegory. But he said he couldn't avoid it. It was essential, was his words. Aragorn becomes king. And while there's only one Aragorn, everybody wants to be Aragorn. Only one. But everybody else is there. 
surrounding him because they had a part to play in that battle. They walked into Mordor too. The hobbits took that ring up the mountain and threw it in. Because they played their part, they got to share in that victory. And at the end of time, Jesus will be king of kings. And he will reign forever and ever and ever. And there's only going to be one Jesus. But we get to be there. We get to share in his victory surrounding him. Because we have a part to play. We have a part to play in the eternal and glorious purpose of God. And we engage our part in the glorious purpose of God when we engage others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where it starts. And for the rest of the series, we'll talk about how we continue. How we make disciples. Defining discipleship and discovering purpose. Discipleship defines purpose. And it's universal to every human being who is able to communicate on the face of this planet. Regardless of your season of life, regardless of job, So that is how we engage our own place in the glorious purpose of God when we engage others with the gospel and give them a chance to experience the love and blessings of God for themselves. Can we pray? Lord, thank you. <coughs> thank you, Lord. You didn't have to include us. You did. You give us an opportunity to participate in something that will last forever. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to see you for who you are, a God who wants to love and bless. And I pray that you would help us to see our role in your eternal and glorious purpose and empower us this week, Lord, by your Holy Spirit to embrace and engage our own role as we engage others for you. Lord, help us to live with a sense where we are blessed by glorious purpose. And we have it on our minds and hearts every single day. In Jesus' name.